Getting out of college and I went to go start my first job and I was signing my onboarding paperwork and I was doing it. I was at my mom's house hanging out with my, my mom and so I was doing that at her kitchen table. And uh, I got to the section where it was asking me about 401k contributions. And I, I remember asking my mom, like, should I, should I, should I contribute? And she was like, she was like, nah, better to have cash in hand, don't contribute. I'm Chris Hill, and that's Justin Richmond, host of the brand new podcast, Started From The Bottom. He's also co-host of the popular music podcast, Broken Record. Ricky Mulvey caught up with Richmond to talk about the challenge of investing when money is scarce, the rise of dynamic pricing in music and entertainment, and the business rules that aren't taught in college. Maybe an overly broad question, but growing up, what was your family and your relationship with money like? Um, man, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, money felt scarce. We weren't poor by any stretch. I mean, we weren't, but it, it certainly money felt scarce, and it felt like a thing to be respected. There was a there was a high premium put on looking as if you had money. And and not in um not necessarily in like some gross keeping up with the Joneses kind of sense, but sort of presenting yourself as sort of you can fit in with people who, you know. The way I sort of thought about money for the longest time was, you know, that it was a, a scarce thing, hard to get, but was a thing to but 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 was certainly something to want to collect. You know, it was like if I could somehow manage, you know, the the other thing would be you know, when you're a kid and you and you don't have a ton of money in your family, you know, but you're still a kid, like you still want certain things. You, you, you see your friends behave in a certain way, you behave in that way. And I just remember a common refrain in my household was, you know, you better, you better make a lot of money when you grow up if that's how you're going to sort of behave, you know, um, if you're going to waste food like the way you do or, or, or want uh, snacks from Trader Joe's, you know, like that's like, you better grow up to have some money. It sounds like your first encounter with, with social class was in kindergarten. Yeah, for, first time it occurred to me that, you know, racism was a thing and, and class and that the two were, were sort of linked, you know, in a personal way, I guess I'll say. Because I also remember, like, you know, like there was a lot happening around the time. Like there was the, 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 the L.A. riots and, and all kinds of things. So, I, I, of course, I knew there was things out in the world, but just in a personal way. But first day of kindergarten... I um, turned up to school. We were living in a new place. Um, so we had just moved there a couple months prior. And it's 1994. So, of course, I got my Power Rangers, you know, attire, shirt, lunchbox. I'm feeling pretty good about the way the day is going to go. Nervous, but feeling good. Uh, feeling like I look good. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll refrain from the name, using the name, but I remember the kid's name. I remember being in line behind this kid and the kid turning around, this white kid turning around and, and sort of, and asking me if I was poor. You know, now I've been in line, I've been at kindergarten all of five minutes and I'm being asked if I'm poor. And I remember it just sort of like, you know, obviously just made me feel really bad, right? And, and, um, and, and hurt and I didn't really get it. What do you mean? Well, you look poor. Oh, well. I don't even understand why, like why, how, why, what, like what did I do, you know? And then, you know, going home that night, talking to my mom, and 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 my mom sort of explaining to me that, you know, that there's, um, you know, that that racism is a thing I will encounter, and that 
um, in a lot of white families, there's things if people aren't out and out racist, there's just sometimes are things that are spoken behind closed doors that 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 will sometimes then slip out to me. So, yeah, that was that was my first encounter. And it, and it really felt like it set up my entire public school experience. I want to touch on an idea you mentioned earlier about money being a, a scarce resource and how that affected your, your attitude toward it and, and your relationship with it. Growing up was the idea of investing. Was that, was that an irrational idea for, for you and your family? Investing was always a mystery to me. I always heard about the market, always heard about investing. I heard about stocks. I didn't even necessarily, I don't even think at the time I could have necessarily Told you that any of those three things were related necessarily you know i wasn't 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 just wasn't sure what it all was and what it meant there was certainly no one in my family doing it or, or or could explain that to me i remember when i got after getting getting out of college and i went to go start my first job and i was signing my onboarding paperwork and i was doing it i was at my mom's house hanging out with my, my mom and so i was doing that at her kitchen table and uh it got to the section where it was asking me about 401k contributions and I, I remember asking my mom, like, should I, should I, should I contribute? And she was like, she's like, nah, better to have cash in hand. Don't contribute, you know. And so, you know, I spent nearly four years at that place. I, I, I spent nearly four years at a company that matches 401k contributions, not contributing, <laughs> you know. Um, so I, I would say it, it felt like, again, with money, I guess the, the idea is, yeah, with, with money being thought of as this scarce thing, it's like, why would you give it away to this imaginary sort of place that maybe you get it back somewhere down the line, but if you really need it, then you're going to get taxed on it. And it's like, just, no, 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 just keep the money in your account. You know, you could, you could grow it in a savings account, you know, was sort of, I guess, maybe the thought. So I, I guess, yeah, I guess it was thought of as irrational, you know, um, and irrational enough that, to be honest, I didn't know what it was for the longest time. It just was never even explained to me. Yeah. I guess irrational was was a leading way, but I think that like our expectations around investing, I think, changed dramatically based on your upbringing. And it's I think it's easy. It's easy to say like, why wouldn't someone contribute to their four hundred one k? Why wouldn't they invest? Yeah. And for many, it's it's uh, if not only if you don't know, you don't know, but also why would you when? Why would you give it away to that imaginary resource? Yeah. Well, and also say too, like, you know, like having, you know, gone into college around the Great Recession too, like also completely changed my conception of what money was. If, if before I thought it was a scarce resource to be sort of hoarded, you know, and I, and I sort of was thinking like, well, how can I get a career that will make me lots of money when the Great Recession happens? And, and, and again, I was, you know, 18, 19, 20 I had a little understanding of what was going on, but not a, a, a not a really sophisticated understanding of what was happening. It, it appeared to me, from a layman's point of view, that no matter how much money you endeavor to make and make in your career, it can just be taken away from you in this very unfair way, you know? That's the way I read it as an 18, 19 year old. And so that sort of became to me, and I think that's probably why I ended up going into journalism, which is felt more like a passion for me because I felt like, well, why would I go into something that makes a ton of money when I'm not even sure that I'm going to end up with all that money that I'm earning, you know, over the years, you know? Uh, talk to me about your education then in, in investing and maybe how your mind changed a bit. Well, yeah, certainly my mind's um, changed a lot. I would still say I'm not necessarily a sophisticated 
um, investor by, by any stretch, but I, I certainly see the value of it. I certainly see much more of a value in putting um, a certain amount of money aside every month to put into, um, in, in, you know, like, I, I don't do, I don't do uh, short-term investing. You know, anything I'm investing is, is pretty, my money's pretty sp- spread thin in my investment portfolio. And, you know, like I def, but I definitely see it as being much more of an asset than just sitting in, um, you know, a, a savings account somewhere, you know, collecting very minimal interest. So, um, you know, now there's, there's times when I invest a lot of my income and then there's times when I, I pull back and, and, I, and I contribute a little less, but I, I'm always contributing. In your conversation with uh, Malcolm Gladwell, you kind of mentioned that early in your career, you didn't understand the jargon of business and the unwritten rules. What were the unwritten rules? I'm still not sure I know, but you know, like imagine me, like I don't, again, like I don't know the, the, the jargon and I'm showing up to meetings with people with the hair the way my hair looks, you know, which is, I can say it, maybe you can't, Ricky, but I'll say it, it's, you know, it's unkempt, you know, like I have a pretty um, natural Afro going, you know, um, and, I, and I like it, it feels, it feels, it feels natural to me, you know, you know, when you go, then you go into a place and everyone's suited and they have their hair crop, like cropped and, and quaffed perfectly and, and you're sort of like and, and then and they're using words and jargon and slogans that you're not a hundred percent you know it, it, it becomes a very intimidating experience for me it was revealing of something I just lacked growing up which was a mentor or someone just in my life, whether someone in my life, like in a neighbor, uh, in my family, of a, a, a friend's dad, anyone that looked like me that had experience in this arena, you know, someone at church, like no one, like nowhere did I have anyone that looked like me that had experience in this arena that I could go to and be like, hey, like I'm not, I don't feel like these meetings are going the way they should be going. And, it, and I feel it's partially because I don't understand how, the, the, how to approach them, you know? That was sort of the impetus for this this show. I felt like, well, I, I, I bet if I could just go ask a bunch of very successful um, black men what they do for a living, or, or how they how they got to where they got, I would start to sort of see a path for myself, you know. And then as, as I was talking to other friends um, from various different backgrounds, and as I was talking to you know my my women colleagues and friends, they felt similarly. You know, they didn't have women role models in their lives growing up or presently necessarily that they could go to and confide in in these ways and be like, I don't know how to um, approach these sorts of scenarios. And and so I thought, well, maybe this could be useful. One thing I've I've heard you mention in in the previous interview is that you said you were less successful in, in business professional settings when you code switched. Why? Yeah, so obviously you you have to temper yourself and so right we bring different versions of ourselves everywhere we go but if the version of yourself that you bring to work or to family or wherever it is is like really inauthentic i don't know that you're bringing in, in other words when you get hired to a position you should be bringing, and I believe now at this point, something intangible to that position. Like you are hired to bring you to that position, not only to, to fulfill like all the generic duties of that position that, that need to be fulfilled, but you also need to bring that intangible thing that is you, like your unique perspective to that, right? And I think if you're being inauthentic, or, or in other words, code switching, you're not bringing your authentic self to that to that job and and therefore you're not 
you're really only doing the bare minimum that that job requires. And, you know, sometimes you find out, like I think I did at NPR, that like, you know, your authentic self isn't necessarily valued. And that can hurt, but it's also a good thing to know because it's like, great, well, you know, this may not be the place for me. Let me go to a place where I am valued, where being my authentic self, of course, tempered for the workplace for a professional setting, provides some extra value. And, you know, I landed at a place like Pushkin with Malcolm Gladwell where, you know, being my authentic self was 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 encouraged and, and certainly seemed to bring a lot of value. And um, so I don't know how you can be successful when you when you are a code switching in a place because you, you're ultimately you're going to be miserable. You're not you're only bringing the bare minimum to that job and you don't know if you're really compatible, you know. Or, or you're a psychopath and you can be anyone, anywhere, all at once. Sure, sure, sure. There's that too. Not many, there's not many who could sustain something like that, though. You speak to a lot of musicians on Broken Record, and I want to talk about Live Nation and Ticketmaster. There's a lot of headlines. I think uh, Zach Bryan is, is thumbing his nose at Ticketmaster with his latest tour. Uh, Taylor Swift is, is the biggest controversy. But a lot of artists seem to work with Ticketmaster and you don't hear much from mm. them. Uh, from your conversations, what are the relationships between artists and Live Nation like behind the scenes? I think strained, you know, I think right now strained. I mean, I think because there's so, it's very hard to make a living as an artist now. I mean, I, I imagine artists are to some degree okay with making sure they're maximizing the value uh, of their of their of their ticket prices, right, for concerts. But I think what's happening now is like we've seen them a period of like you know basically no concerts for two years. People are are starved for live experiences. We're coming back. There's this you know crazy inflation, and and now the couple of major ticket services that exist are 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 using dynamic pricing, and I and I think it's really ticking fans off. And I think. It's rather than um, on, on some level, there's there's very savvy fans, the Swifties, the Taylor Swift fans are a very savvy <laughs> group of people, and they're they're sticking a Ticketmaster with like a lawsuit. But I think I think you know a, a, a good amount of fans aren't you know sort of directing their ire at at, at the ticketing services, but at at the artist. You know, like the amount of people I've seen angry at Bruce Springsteen in particular because of the price of his concerts. You know, this it's just like. Um, or, or Beyonce, like, you know, the, some of the blowback is getting back to the artist. And so I would say it's strained right now. And, and, uh, and I wonder if that keeps increasing sort of the blowback that artists are receiving based on ticket prices um, and, and ticketing, ticket pricing strategies, if we'll see the relationship become more and more strained and if we'll see artists become more vocal. Um, if, if the ire of audiences are not getting back to the artists. I don't really think it behooves them to be vocal against Ticketmaster or, 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 or AXS or any of that, right? But, you know, obviously if, if that is coming back to them and hurting them and their image and their fan base, I think we'll, we'll, we'll probably see artists be more vocal about it. Slightly gross way to put it. I can't afford to go to the concert. I wish the ticket prices were lower. For Bruce Springsteen, he's selling out, he, no pro, like, he can listen to them. He's also selling out arenas 
Well, but then there was like, but oddly enough, like, and again, like Bruce is like an artist where you think, and I love, I love Bruce Springsteen. In fact, I wish I wanted to go see him on this tour. I don't think I'll get the chance, but you know, like you were hearing reports about like certain cities where like it was like, there were like tickets ultimately weeks leading up to it going for like $2, you know, because like, yeah. you know, they weren't, they weren't, it wasn't selling out. I saw Bob Iger, I think just yesterday was, you know, this is slightly different, but talking about. Um, he felt like maybe they were being too aggressive on the pricing for for park admission for Disneyland and for a couple of their experiences at the hotels because basically those the the the, ho the hotel experiences were flopping and 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 prices had gone up. I mean, perhaps a hundred percent. I can't remember the exact numbers at parks over the last couple of years, and um, they're maybe looking at revising that. And and I do think, you know, I think people are trying to make up for lost money. Uh, coming out of the lockdown, but I, I'm wondering if we're going to have to start changing changing the pricing strategy around around tickets. Be curious to see what happens with the movies. You know, I see I see movies are you know movie theaters are going to now experience with the or, or, or experiment with like variable pricing, and um, I wonder how like, how that impacts that. You know, it's already hard to get people to get to a theater now. If you're going to start not if you're not going to know as a consumer what a movie ticket's going to cost, like do you go? I don't know. My cynical take on the movie theater ones, though, is that it's very easy to jump seats in a movie theater compared to a <laughs> arena or yeah, ballpark. A like, it's why a would fair it, point. If you're seeing a Wednesday night showing, why wouldn't you just pay for the cheapest tickets and then see what's open at showtime? Do you really think? Do you really think the guy, the 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 guy or, or uh, woman working at AMC theaters is gonna is gonna check your ticket and drag you out? You 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 are very unlikely to to have to do the long walk of shame. From the back to your seat in the way you would at like a ballpark or yeah. something, you know. <laughs> in working on Broken Record and, and talking to a lot of these artists, it's it seems like a lot of musicians have incredible stories and just little anecdotes that are completely unbelievable. Are there any anecdotes, stories from from doing that show or maybe not doing that show that you just like can't get out of your head? Okay, I'm 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 definitely not gonna tell it in, in any way as uh, eloquently as he does, um, the way he takes you through his moods and such. But um, in the uh, in the early 90s, DMC from Run DMC found himself incredibly depressed, very depressed. I mean, he has, a, he, has, he has a wife, he has a kid, he has a career. Of course, Run DMC aren't necessarily like the hot new thing anymore, but they're still run DMC, get a lot of respect from their peers and from, at that point, artists who were a bit younger and they were still able to go on tour and release records and make money. So everything's fine career-wise, really, but he's in this deep depression and he just can't figure it out to the point where he's suicidal. And if I'm remembering it correctly, he got landed uh, um, back in New York from a, a tour date and was in a back of a car, courier service, going back home and I, if, God, if my memory's correct, it's like that he was gonna go home to kill himself. And the song, he's in the car and the song, Sarah McLaughlin's song in the arms of an angel comes on and he breaks down crying and sort of has this spiritual renewal, like where all of a sudden his like depression, or I don't wanna say miraculously, but he has this like a spiritual, it, it, may, it, it lifts him enough out of the depression that he's now not suicidal, but he goes and he, he gets the song and he just plays it on repeat for if I, if I believe for months until the song literally lifted him out of a depression. 
it, it was amazing. There's there's a there's a story we've done there about him. There's a bit we've done there about him actually getting to meet Sarah McLachlan before he actually is lifted all the way out of his depression. And ultimately, he gets to collaborate on her with the song, with her on a song. But it is just this gorgeous story of um, sort of someone struggling and, and and sort of trying to find find their way. And 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 the song out of nowhere lifts him up. And I can't listen to that song now without thinking about that. And that song has totally changed in my mind from sort of like a song that I didn't take all that seriously or thought of as sort of being that ASPCA, you know, infomercial song to like a really gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous song. Um, I was listening to it actually, like not that long ago, my wife was looking at me like, what are you listening? I was like, just listen, it's beautiful, okay? Just leave me alone. <laughs> totally changed my perspective on it. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.